how are you guys doing this morning? Awesome. We got one doing well. Everyone else is kind of just ready to zone out for the rest of the sermon. I get it. I get it. It's me. It's not Nathaniel. So hopefully, I don't drop that corona again. And hopefully, my hope is that we learn something today that transforms our hearts and minds. And to, to begin, I want to ask you guys a question. So um, the, the message is going to be on the Word of God. Obviously, if you've guessed that already, you're, you're pretty smart, you're ahead of the game. But how many of you have ever read the Bible from front to back? Any raise of hands? All right, we got a few. Awesome. Well, when I was a kid, I was challenged to read my Bible every day. And for some reason, I was a super undisciplined kid growing up. All I wanted to do was go outside, run in the woods, and like get muddy and dirty. My mom called me Pigpen from, you know, Charlie Brown because I was just constantly dirty all the time and never did anything. But for some reason, I took this challenge really important because the guy who, who told me was at a camp and he was like, this book can transform your life. It can it can teach you how to live and it can teach you what is true. So I was like, you know what? I want to know how to live. I want to know the truth. So I'm going to read my Bible every day. And when I first started, I opened up my Bible and was just kind of like flip open to whatever page and was like, Holy Spirit, guide me. Did like this mystical, like <laughs> kind of just flip open the pages and see what, what, what would come of it. And I did that for a little while. But as I got older, I started thinking, you know what, if this is my faith, if this is something that I'm going to have as a foundation for my life, I, I want to know what's inside. Because if I don't know what it's in, what's inside of it, how could I really say that it's what I believe in? I didn't, I didn't want glimpses anymore. I wanted the full picture. So I was like 11, 12. I opened the Bible to Genesis one, one, and I started reading the, those beautiful lines of, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. Then God said, let there be light, and there was light. God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness, and God called the light day and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning one day. The song of creation begins, and if you were to continue to listen or read the rest of the book, the, the first chapter of the book of Genesis, you would find this repetition, this, this song of creation of God, God's word coming and speaking something in, into being, which is usually light or life, and that coming forth, and then God saying that it is good. And, you know, when he comes the man, he, he breathes into man, which is this, this intimate act of being close to someone. If you've ever been close enough to feel someone's breath, you're usually, you know, pretty close, or it's a pretty awkward game of chicken, either one. But this, this idea of God speaking into being and these things coming out of, out of light, you know, God creating the stars, creating the moon, creating the sun. He creates 
light. And then he creates life. He creates the birds. He creates, you know, the, the creepy crawlies, the things on the ground. He creates us. He creates all these things with his word. And I always thought that that was kind of weird. Because if I was writing the book, writing the book of scriptures, I probably would have said God, like, crafted everything. Like, he made it with his hands. Because usually when I make something, I make something with my hands, right? Like, God, like, chiseled away the, you know, the, the earth and made, like, mountains and stuff. I thought that would be pretty cool. And I also thought it would be pretty cool if God just, like, thought all these things into existence. Like, he just, like, thinks it and then it comes into being. But there is something very special and something very important that the writer of Genesis is getting at when he keeps talking about the word of God speaking and light and life coming into existence. And 11 and 12-year-old Lincoln had no idea that this was important. I had no idea until many years later that this chapter, Genesis 1, was not just something periphery. It wasn't just a story of, you know, how the earth was made, but it was something central to the idea and central to the theme of scripture and the theme of what the word of God is. It's essential for mine and yours existence. So, um, what do I mean by this? Well, um, who is familiar with the idea of foreshadowing? You know, it's, if, if you're not, it's okay. I'll try to explain it. Foreshadowing is something that's done in film or in a book. And what it is, it's, it's a signal or a clue or a hint to what's going to happen the rest of the story. So why I love this so much is because when someone does it, when someone uses foreshadowing super well, you can tell that, they're, that they put a lot of thought and effort and they, they planned everything out beforehand. It's not just something that's kind of like thrown together, mumble jumble, random just happens. But it's something that is designed. And my favorite director is Christopher Nolan. I don't know if you guys know who that is. But he's done like some of my favorite films. He's done Inception, Interstellar. Um, the Dark Knight trilogy and a bunch of other films. I'm not necessarily, necessarily saying you have to see them, but I love him because he really uses the idea of foreshadowing super well in his films. And they're really well thought out. Uh, my favorite of the Dark Knight trilogy, I know most of you will say The Dark Knight, but Batman Begins is my favorite. And I think it's objectively better. Just saying. Personally, I mean, maybe you guys have a, a different idea, but if you can uh, think back to 2005, rewind back there. Some of you may not have been alive then or like one or two years old, but think back. George W. Bush was still in the middle of his presidency. Lincoln was going, he was entering into middle school. I think, I don't know if I want to think about this anymore, but we'll, we'll stay there. Um, you're watching Batman Begins, and Bruce and Rachel are playing hide-and-go-seek. They're running around looking for each other, and Bruce goes and he hides on top of this, this well, and there's these like really old boards, and he ends up falling through the boards. And he lands 
in this well, in this kind of like scary, dark well, and he breaks his arm, and I think he breaks his leg, and he's looking down this like tunnel that he can't see because it's just dark, and then bats come, and they traumatize him. They, like, you can see that he's very scared, he's frightened, and then his dad comes, he saves him, and he brings him up, and, you know, starts, he's a doctor, so he starts bringing him into the house, and he's going to, you know, fix him. But before he does that, he says, why do we fall, Bruce? So that we can learn to pick ourselves back up again. That's like, that's what happens. That's the first scene in the movie. And that is what sets up the rest of the movie, right? It's uh, Bruce keeps falling and he learns to pick himself back up again. And he becomes stronger through that. What doesn't kill him makes, it, makes him stronger. So like his parents die. He, he wants to kill the person who killed them. He becomes a thief to live, and all these things eventually make him who he is. He's Batman, right? And when he loses everything, when, he's, when the city's about to like d- be destroyed, he falls his hardest, and then he remembers who he is, and he's like, you know what? I've learned to pick myself back up again, and he goes and saves the day, and that's like, you know, the, the movie hero type thing, superhero type thing. But what I love about that is that there's this consistent theme that is foreshadowed in the very first scene of the movie. And that is exactly what is happening here in Genesis 1. I think, first of all, that God, the author of scripture, the, the author of life, you know, Christopher Nolan doesn't hold a candle to what God does in scripture. And no, no writer, whether that's, you know, Charles Dickens or or whoever you can think of, they don't hold a candle, candle to the, the beautiful writing and the beautiful authorship of God. And we discover that truth when we open and read his word. And uh, some of you guys might be going, okay, uh, foreshadowing Genesis 1, what does this have to do with me? Or what, why is this important? Well... Um, how many of you guys are parents or who have had parents? You know, everyone could raise their hand. You, you don't really need. If you care about someone, or if they care about you, you repeat things over and over to them so that they can know what is important, right? For me, it was always school and grades. Partially, you repeat things because, you know, they don't listen, <laughs> But another part is that it's important. And if you say something over and over again, it, it has the idea of this is important and it carries weight. And they desire for us to know the truth. That's why it's repeated. So if there's a central theme that is brought up time and time again in Scripture, foreshadowed in the first chapter, first chapter, then it has weight. It has an importance for us as his people to understand, but not just to understand, but to act upon. So what, what is this foreshadowed idea? It's that the word of God is the true source, the only source of light and life. So the word of God is the only source for light and life. 
And if you desire to be filled with light and life, the word of God is essential for you to know. Okay, that makes sense when talking about Genesis 1, Lincoln. I understand that, you know, God spoke and everything came into existence. That makes sense. But how, for this to be what I said it to be, it has to be true throughout, you know, all of God's word. So, what happens after Genesis 1? Well, you know, Adam and Eve get deceived by Satan, the, the snake, and he's like, he twists the words of God, and is like, you know what, did God really say that? And then Eve takes the bite, and then Adam's like, oh, well, that looks good. I'll try that, <laughs> right? He does that, idiot. I would have done the same thing, so I don't know why I'm calling him an idiot. <laughs> but anyways, anyways, Cain and Abel happens, and Cain kills his brother, and the Bible describes this time as being so wicked, so evil, that it says that the, the thoughts of all people were evil continuously and that the violence of the times was so great that it filled the whole earth. And God, the one who created light and life, who breathed man into existence, sees men killing each other. The, the sacred thing that he made in his image and they're killing each other and darkness is overfilling the, the whole earth, the whole... F- earth is filled with darkness and death. And so God goes to Noah and is like, we're going to build, you're going to build an ark. You're going to save your family. You're going to save the, you know, the, the creatures that I created. And there's going to be a new world. And God gives him this truth to guide Noah and to save the lives of, you know, his family and the, the animals. And if you read the Old Testament, uh, if you read from, you know, front to, to back of the Old Testament, you detect this pattern. It's like, in the days of such such a prophet, whether that be Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jeremiah, the word of the Lord came to Abraham, Isaac, Jeremiah, whoever it is. And then it describes what happened. And what happens usually is that the word of God comes and it transforms the lives. It changes the landscape of everything and miraculous things come, come into being because of that. Whether that's uh, Abraham, who is called by God to leave his family, leave all he has and go to the promised land. From Ur to the promised land. And when him and his wife Sarah are over a hundred years old and almost dead, God brings life from which there was death so that he would be the father of many nations. And eventually the Messiah, the seed, would come to bless all the nations of the earth. Or the years of the Lord's silence in between Joseph and Moses where the word of God didn't come and the people of God end up being slaves in Egypt and are oppressed and are in a land where all they do is, is work for the Pharaoh. And the word of God comes to Moses through a burning bush. And God comes in a miraculous way and leads his people out of the land of Egypt and into the promised land, delivering them from 
the, the, the oppression of slavery into the hope of, of living in freedom in the land of their own. And when Moses receives the law, he, he, you know, he gets it on Mount Sinai and he comes down to the people. And we can kind of have this idea of the law of which it's like restrictive and not like what we want for our lives. We're like, that's the Old Testament stuff. And, you know, God, Jesus fulfilled the law. But he even says that he doesn't come to abolish the law. He comes to fulfill the law. And the law was something which was so important to the Jewish people because before then all they were was they, they lived in slavery. They had no idea how to govern a nation. They had no idea how to live in freedom. They had no idea how to interact with one another. And God gives them this law in which it's given to direct them to live in a just way with one another. To, to save one another from, you know, killing, them, killing other people or taking other people's stuff. It's, it's this idea of directing their lives so that justice would prevail in their midst and that they would be a light to the nations around them. That other nations would see how the Israelites, these people of God, would live. The psalmist writes in 119, 97 through 105, and he describes what the law of God was meant to be for the people of Israel and what it meant for him. It says, oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Your commandments make me wiser than my enemies, for they are ever mine. I have more insight than all my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditation. I understand more than the aged, because I have observed your precepts. I have restrained my feet from every evil way, that I may keep your word. I have not turned aside from your ordinances, for you yourself have taught me. How sweet are your words to my taste, yes, sweeter than honey to my mouth. From your precepts, I get understanding. Therefore, I hate every false way. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. And after God gives them the law, Deuteronomy chapter 7, 12 through 15 reveals what will come if they choose to follow this light, this direction. It says, then it shall come about because you listen to these judgments and keep and do them that the Lord your God will keep with you his covenant and his loving kindness, which he swore to your forefathers on your ground, your grain, or, and he will love you and bless you and multiply you. He will bless the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your ground, your grain and your new wine, your oil and the increase of your herd, the young of your flock and the land which he swore to you and your forefathers to give to you. You shall be blessed above all the peoples. There will be no male or female barren among you or among your cattle. The Lord will remove from you all sickness and he will not put on you any of the harmful diseases of Egypt, which you have known, but he will lay them on all who hate you. What is promised is life abundant. Now we lack the time to cover Elijah, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Daniel, Gideon, and all the rest of the, you know, the, the heroes, the prophets of the Bible. And maybe you guys are going, thank goodness, that was like 
weird history lesson of the Old Testament, but we, we lack the time, so you guys are good. But they highlight the centrality, centrality of this idea of the importance and power of the word of God to bring forth light of which there was darkness and to bring forth life of which there was death. And it's important that we understand the centrality of the word of God when we read the Bible. That sounds a little like oxymoronic, does it not? <laughs> like we're reading the word of God. Yeah, of course it's important. But it, it's, it's important. And it's not just the language that we use when we're talking about it. It's something very significant about saying the word of God. And I think that's because someone's word is something personal and it's something important. If you can trust someone's word or you can't trust someone's word, that means a lot. And the reason why is because your word isn't just something you say, it's a revelation of your heart. It is a, it is a revealing um, of who you are when you speak. Jesus says that out of the heart, the mouth speaks. And that's what the word of God is. It is the revealing of who God is. And that God is the one who brings life, who brings light. And we see that in Genesis 1. And we see that throughout the Old Testament and um, just another way, I think how a word, uh, words are so important and they reveal who you are. Uh, say you're sitting at a wedding. Maybe you're going and you're just going by yourself and you sit with a bunch of strangers at a table, okay? And uh, you don't speak to any of the strangers because maybe you're shy and maybe they all know each other and you're like, I don't know if I want, want to talk to them or anything. And maybe you hear their names being told like across the table. Maybe you even pick up on some of their mannerisms. Maybe even like you, you see who they are and you, you can, you know, tell who they are. But if someone asked you, do you know them? You'd go, no, I don't know them. I didn't talk to them. I didn't get to know them. As opposed to, you know, is pen pals still a thing? Or uh, maybe aim buddies? Okay, it's not 2005. Maybe I miss it. <laughs> but, uh, you know, when you talk to someone through pen pals or, you know, email, you can get an understanding of who they are and you can get a really close relationship with that person without ever even seeing them or experiencing anything with them or knowing them. Uh, like, as opposed to like, you know, doing stuff with them. But you can know who they are, even though you never, never physically met them. And um, it's not necessarily the people that you're, you spend the most time with that you're closest to. And in my opinion, it's the people that you're most comfortable bearing your heart to. The people that you're most willing to have the deep, honest, meaningful conversations with. And when God reveals 
his word, he isn't just giving a lecture. He isn't just saying, okay, here's how it is. That's, you need to do that. No, he's revealing his heart. He's revealing who he is. But there's something that can be mixed, missed over texting conversations or, um, or pen pals or whatever it is. The subtleties of interacting face-to-face are important. And there can be confusion if there isn't. And I think God knows that. And in John 1, we find this, the, the, culminant, uh, the, the foreshadowing of what was going to happen. In John 1, 1, it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through Him, and apart from Him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness does not comprehend it. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we saw his glory as the glory of the only begotten from the father, full of grace and truth. John testified about him and cried out saying that was he of whom I said, he who comes after me has a higher rank than I, for he has existed before me. For of his fullness, we have all received and grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses And grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten of God who is in the bosom of the Father. He has explained him. I've come to know through reading that the message of the Bible is consistent from front to back. Which is... Truly amazing, considering that was written over 1,500 years with 40 different authors and three different languages on three different continents. It's a book about the word of God coming into the status quo and absolutely destroying it and bringing light out of, <laughs> and shining into darkness and bringing life of which death reigned. And the ultimate revelation of the word of God is his son. And he came to give what the word of God can give alone, life and light. All right, question. Who... Which one of you, you guys don't have to raise your hand. You guys can just do this mentally. But question, who, how many of you guys want life and light? I, I presume that all of you guys would raise your hand if that would be the case. But it also has the idea of something being bigger than light and life. Because honestly, I could sit on that chair for the rest of my life looking at that light. And that's not what you mean. Right? That's not what I mean. That's not what God means. And uh, when you're talking about light and life in the, the Bible, it's something far greater than just light and light. It, it means more. Um, light has the idea of truth. 
You know, it's not, that's not very hard to understand. Light and truth go together. If we turned off all the lights and maybe just like sat here quietly and you couldn't see anything, maybe you hear like a growl and you're like, oh goodness, there's a tiger in this room. And then we turn on the lights. No, it wasn't a tiger. It was just my, you know, stomach. There's a revelation of truth when it comes to light. And light guides and directs. And I, I don't know about you guys, but I think most people have a desire to know truth. Most people, this is, I mean, this is one of the reasons why we have schools and why we have colleges and universities and people spend, you know, how many years of their life getting PhDs and master degrees and all that and why I spend an insane amount of numbers listening to podcasts and YouTube videos and reading books. You know, the number I don't even want to tell you because I, like, I have a desire to know what is real and what is not. I, I have a desire to know truth. And in the same way, we desire a life. We, we desire life, but not just life as in like going every day, but we desire a meaningful life, a full life, a good life. And this is why people, you know, dedicate their lives to careers or, fam- or having a family or whatever it is. You want a full life, a meaningful life. And we pursue that. And we pursue that because God design us, designs us in such a way in which we truly desire to know what is true and to experience the fullness of life. And when Jesus came to the earth, he said in Genesis eight twelve, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but he will have the light of life. Jesus in John 10 says, I have come so that they may have life and have it abundantly. When talking to the woman at the well, who had had, you know, five different marriages and had tried to find her, her, her life in these, these marriages, Jesus tells her, Whoever drinks of this water, you know, the the water at the well, will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water which I will give shall never thirst. But the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. John 6, when Jesus is talking to the crowd after he feeds the 5,000 says, I am the bread of life. Not that bread. That's my quotations. (laughs) He who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. What is the life that Jesus offers? It's a life (laughs) of meaning. It's a life of satisfaction. It's a life of fullness, not of want. How can Jesus say that he can give this to us? It's because he is the word of God made flesh. The very word of God that created everything. Who created light and life and created you and I and everything that we know and see. 
and he desires to bring it into our lives to transform it. Question, where are we looking for truth? Where are we looking for light? Where are you, where am I looking for life? Where are we looking for fullness of life? And where is that getting you? I don't know how you answer that. It takes some self-reflection to think and time to think about that. Well, when I think about that, it's, it's super convicting to me. I know that. But the Bible is quite clear, and I know from experience, that the only source of light and life, of fullness and of truth, is the Word of God, who is Jesus Christ. And he is, the amazing thing is that He has invited you and I to experience that light. In that life. And when Paul writes to the, the, to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 4, and possibly my, one of my favorite chapters, maybe my favorite chapter of the Bible, in 6, in verse 6, he says, For God, who said, Light shall shine out of darkness, is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of of God in the face of Christ. This message has been brought to you by Alpine Bible Church in Lehigh, Utah. If you'd like more information, please visit us online at alpinebible.com.